Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with John K. Nelson about his recent book, Experimental Buddhism, Innovation and Activism in Contemporary Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2013. In this work, Nelson delves into the historical circumstances that have led to the declining fortunes of Japanese Buddhism, and explores recent and ongoing attempts by Japanese Buddhist clerics to render Buddhism relevant to Japanese society once again. Based on extensive fieldwork, interviews, and the author's own participation in some of the innovative programs featured in the book, Experimental Buddhism features 45 temples and some of the experiments that they are undertaking. Shingon monks chanting in a jazz club in Tokyo, a female cabaret dance troupe performing in front of the massive seated Buddha of the twelve-and-a-half-century-old Todaiji, a priest-run counseling center located in a covered shopping arcade, and a suicide prevention group run by priests are but a few of the fascinating examples that Nelson identifies as part of a new trend within Japanese Buddhism, albeit a minor one as of yet. Rather than simply being another transformation within Japanese Buddhism that has developed over time, the experimental Buddhism at the center of Nelson's work arises from individual agency, a type of personal freedom that was absent in previous eras, and new communication technologies. From priest-run bars where monks come bartenders serve cocktails with Buddhist names and look for chances to chat with patrons about the middle way or about the patrons' personal woes, to a Nichiren temple in Tokyo, where sutras were transformed into rap lyrics set to a beat, the experiments described here are carefully thought-out attempts made by clerics who recognize that in the modern period, Buddhist institutions and teachings have largely failed to address the problems that most concern the Japanese laity. Before presenting us with specific case studies, Nelson spends the first third of the book clarifying the larger social context in which experimental Buddhism should be understood. Central here is the rapid modernization that Japan experienced beginning in the 1950s and the heightened importance and freedom of the individual in Japanese society. As Japanese felt increasingly free to choose their religious beliefs, practices, and affiliations, many terminated the relationship between family and temple that had been a central feature of Japanese Buddhism since 1635. Besides this gradual loss of parishioners, Other factors directly impacting Buddhism include the 1946 land reforms, whereby temples lost most of their leasable lands and were thus driven to even greater economic reliance on funerals and memorial services, the negative public image of the Buddhist priest in Japanese society, and a refusal by a large percentage of Buddhist clerics to recognize the deteriorating relationship between Buddhist institutions and Japanese society. 
In asking how Japanese Buddhism might make itself relevant once again, Nelson points out that the sectarianism common in Japanese Buddhism means that each institution is structured to focus on perpetuating itself rather than asking about the health of Japanese Buddhism more broadly. Because of this, ecumenical collaboration and a willingness to introspect and ask difficult questions are vital if Japanese Buddhism is to survive as more than cultural and architectural heritage. Concerning this point, Nelson discusses two groups that are attempting such a feat, and here, as throughout the book, his research has lent an extra dimension by his own participation in the program in question. The book is a must-read for anyone interested in the current state of Japanese Buddhism and Japanese religion more broadly. However, while readers will be skillfully led through Japan's own complicated web of historical contingencies that led to the current state of affairs, the book addresses dynamics and quandaries that religions have faced the world over during the past two centuries, a fact which du- Nelson duly notes. The book will therefore be useful to anyone interested in how a religion copes with modern social, economic, political, and institutional changes, and Japan is a particularly illuminating case study because of the speed with which, with which these changes have occurred there. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with John Nelson, and we're going to be discussing his recent book, Experimental Buddhism, Innovation and Activism in Contemporary Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2013 as part of its Topics in Contemporary Buddhism series. This book won the 2014 Toshihide Numata Book Prize, administered by the Center for Buddhist Studies at UC Berkeley. John Nelson is professor of East Asian Religions in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of San Francisco. Among his previous works are two monographs on Shinto in contemporary Japan and two documentaries focusing on Yasukuni Shrine and Japanese practices for commemorating the war dead. He also co-edited Brill's 2012 Handbook of Contemporary Japanese Religions. John Nelson, welcome to the show and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You're very welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I was wondering if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you came to the study of Japan and or Buddhism and or uh, Japanese religion. Right. Well, I'll make this very short. I'm from a small town in the middle of Kansas, about 400 people, and I grew up with a very close sense of the Native Americans who lived there before the white people did, and When I became curious in the university about their religious practices and their approach to nature, I found a certain resonance with animistic forms in Japan as well as elsewhere in the world. So that caught my interest and I thought, oh, if I could ever go to Japan and look around and see what's there, that would be uh, a goal worth pursuing. In my last year at the university, I took a class in Zen Buddhism taught by a rather eccentric philosopher who did absolutely nothing to prepare his students for what is happening in religion in contemporary Japan. Mm. But we certainly got a philosophical orientation to all the main ideas of, of Zen Buddhism. I don't think we even once talked about Zazen in the class. But again, that added another uh, layer of curiosity to my desire to go to Japan. And when I graduated, I had a degree in English literature, which was absolutely useful for getting a job. However, it was useful for finding a position overseas teaching English as a second language. And so I I found a position in Sapporo, Japan, 
flew directly from Kansas to Sapporo without a word of Japanese except thank you and I'm sorry, <laughs> and, which is very useful. And uh, from there, I traveled extensively in Japan, learned Japanese, had many wonderful, surprising, serendipitous encounters, not only with uh, Buddhist priests, but also with Shinto priests and local people who showed me shrines that had nothing to do with either Buddhism or Shinto. And from there, then, I went back to graduate school, uh, got a degree in creative writing, and went back to Japan to teach at a university for a while in Nagasaki. And that's the place where I did my field research that became my first book on A Year in a Life of a Shinto Shrine, published in 1995, which I might mention is still in print. It's in its uh, fifth printing. Wow. And also then uh, later on when I was accepted into the uh, doctoral program at UC Berkeley in anthropology, my dissertation was on Kamigamo Shrine in northeast Kyoto, which according to many historians, there were a number of these shrines in the area before the city was established in 794 or so. Mm. And that sense of history, <clears throat> very old, deep history, um, I thought was unique to Shinto, but I soon found out that uh, Buddhist institutions were almost as old, but certainly better organized and better networked. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that was my second book. Uh, it's called Enduring Identities. And then finally, I moved into Buddhist studies quite recently. And that's partially because I grew disenchanted with uh, what was happening in contemporary Shinto in Japan, the move to the right wing, the mm -hmm. uh, co-optation of Shinto by uh, militaristic groups, nationalistic groups. I just got sick and tired of dealing with all that. And, well, yeah, that's so that's a, an orientation to where I am today. Great. So, ha so... Um so well, you mentioned so you so you've just mentioned how you sort of shifted from uh, focusing more on uh, Shinto and contemporary Japan to Buddhism. But how did you come uh, specifically to focus on the topic of um, experimental Buddhism, which will and we'll right. talk about yeah. in, in, a, in a second. We'll talk about what exactly right. you I'll mean by experimental. Sure, Buddhism. but um, in San Francisco, where University of San Francisco is located, we have fairly easy access to Japantown, which has a number of temples established by Japanese immigrants at various periods in time. I always take my students to the Buddhist Church of San Francisco, which is a true Pure Land or Shinshu denomination. And according to many scholars, it is the first Buddhist temple in North America, hmm. established in 18, oh, 1898, I think. They have a fantastic big altar in the front of the temple. And when I took a class there once, one girl was particularly entranced by the altar and she just kept looking at it and looking at it. And she said, well, I want to study everything I can about this altar. And I asked the priest about the altar. He said, well, I really don't know anything about it. <laughs> and I found information rather hard to access about why Japanese temple altars are the way they are. There, I mean, of course there's stuff in Japanese, but I was being very pragmatic and wanted to help my student with her project. And then I thought, well, this might be worth a real research project. And I received funding from the Japan Foundation to do a study of altars in temples in Japan. As soon as I got there, though, 
a priest in Sakamoto told me that this is really not an interesting topic. <laughs> and that took me by surprise, but I thought, well, that's just his opinion. But then I heard it from a, a Rinzai priest. Hmm. And then I heard it from a true Pure Land priest. The first priest was a, a Shingon priest. Hmm. And after hearing it from three priests in various degrees of, of politeness, it finally <laughs> sunk in that maybe I should listen to what they're saying about the crisis that they're facing regarding a drop in parishioners, a lack of relevance in Japanese society, mm. a, a bad reputation mm-hmm. because of misbehaving priests and some of the fallout from funeral Buddhism, which we can talk about later on. Mm. And then I also went back to some books I had read before coming to Japan, one by the anthropologist uh, Ueda Noriyuki called Gambare Bukyo, or Hang in There Buddhism, which was a pretty tough critique about contemporary Buddhism in Japan. So I went back and looked at that and got in touch with him, and he thought, oh, this is a great thing, and he helped me with some initial interviews. Mm. Then the project just took off after that. It was not called Experimental Buddhism until – see, the project started in 2006, 2007, and then I did subsequent trips every year, sometimes twice a year, between 2007 to 2010, and then buckled down and had a manuscript by uh, 2011. It was about halfway through 2010 where I thought – I can't keep calling it by the name I'm, I'm using right now. There are many problems with it, and I'm not very good with titles, but this one came to me very easily, sitting at the breakfast table, reading the newspaper. It just appeared. Oh, mm. call your work Experimental Buddhism. And I thought, oh, well, that's too easy. I did a Google search. Nobody was using the term. It had been referred to just in passing, and I do acknowledge that in the book. But um, nobody had really run with this concept. And so I thought, all right, it's a, it's a good opportunity, and here we go. Great. So um, before, um, um, before we get into the uh, question of what exactly experimental Buddhism is and uh, the sort of social and historical context in which it arose, um, I wanted to ask one question about methodology. Um, you visited... Well, um, you visited more than uh, this, but these, but there are 45, 45 of the, uh, you've listed 45 temples that you visited that are included in the book um, at w- and at which you conducted interviews, or 45 temples made it into the book, that is. Right. Um, would you please explain how you chose the temples that you did and how you went about approaching the priests? Uh, you mentioned that about one fourth of the interviews were conducted after you just uh, knocked at the door of the temple and you know, explain what you were doing. Um. Mm -hmm. Well, as you know, uh, doing research in Japan depends upon recommendations from one person to the next person. And that helped me considerably with uh, the latter part of the research. But you're right, about a quarter of the temples, I just did go to the front door and knocked on the door and introduced myself. And usually the way that worked was... The head priest would be busy, his wife would answer the door, or a person in the office, or the father, or somebody other than the head priest would answer the door. And then I would explain myself, give them a name card, 
and ask if I could call back at a certain time when the head priest might be available. And then I would do that, and sometimes it would be, if it was a temple in my neighborhood, then of course I would just go back there again and show my face. And many times then, that second trip, the priest knew I was coming at around a certain time, and they would be ready for me, so that I was invited in, and we just conducted the interview right then. Hmm. It was always surprising to me how once I got in the door and asked a few initial questions, they opened up to me quite uh, surpri- well, it was surprising how quickly they would be telling me about internal dynamics and problems they're facing and challenges they're, they're facing. Hmm. I, I think they recognized I was sympathetic to some of the issues that uh, were confounding them. Yeah. Also that I had talked to other priests in other places. Of course, I kept all the information confidential. Yeah. But I would say something like, well, I met a priest in the uh, Sotoshu Zen tradition last week up in this place, and he was talking about something that happened and how his temple was dealing with it. And oh, and then this priest would say, all right, we have a similar situation here. Or, or he would say, oh, I have a friend at a temple, one of their cohort temples, same denomination, maybe uh, a person that he trained with or is connected to his family in some way. So that would provide another venue for me to uh, pursue. And many times the priests would make a call on my behalf. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they just mm-hmm. said, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. And then I would. And I would ask the priest, well, can I use your name that you have recommended? I talk to this person. And, yes, sure, go ahead. He knows me. And it was pretty easy. Hmm. Um, what was so different for th- from doing this research from my previous research in Shinto was that here I was moving around and I had many options, many different opportunities. Whereas the two books that I did on Shinto, I was focused on a pr- one particular institution. Mm-hmm. The first book was about a shrine in Nagasaki. The second book was about this big shrine in, in Kyoto. And all my interviews there were so fraught with risk. Mm. And if one priest thought I was asking too much or asking the wrong question, they could have shut the door in my face, and that would have been a major disaster for the uh, project. I probably would have ended the project. Mm-hmm. There is one book um, where the researcher had this happen and was able to roll with the blow and come up with new dimensions to the topic. Uh, so that's also possible. And also, I think the fact that I am a cultural anthropologist and not a historian gives me a greater or a, a broader toolkit, I would say, so that I could look at, in, in doing fieldwork, in doing ethnographic fieldwork in cultural social anthropology, we expect to deal with historical matters, political matters, economic uh, contextual, cultural, of course, uh, we're just all over the place. And mm-hmm. all of these different areas of interest become part of a toolkit. And so it really depends upon the situation at hand, which tool you're going to use. Um, so I think that probably gives you an idea about um, this approach to the, to the research. And I, I might also mention 
uh, Ian Reader wrote a, sh- a chapter for a book on field work. I think it was uh, Ted and Vicki Bester who put that book together. And he was the one who proposed this go up and knock on the door, <laughs> be, be ready for rejection and humiliation and failure. And, of course, that happened also quite frequently. Yes. And that's a good lesson for people. Uh, we, we go into Japan and we have a rather high notion of our project and its importance and so on, our institutional affiliations and the grant that we've received. Yeah. But for the people that we're relying upon to provide information and to help us with our projects, they could care less about that. Uh-huh. And many times we have to think from their perspective, well, what good is it going to do me to talk to this foreigner? Yeah. What good is it going to do me to help with this project? In fact, it may not do me any good at all. It may, it may provide uh, risk and right. uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. So I think for uh, people doing this type of work, whether it's in anthropology or sociology or history, we always have to be really aware of the position and the contexts of our informants so that we don't expect to be privileged in any way. In fact, we really need to be grateful and appreciative to everybody that cooperates with what we want to do. I see. Great. So, um, so, so moving on to the, uh, to the first chapter, here you discuss the larger context in which what you're calling experimental Buddhism must be understood. And generally speaking, this is a context characterized by the rapid modernization that Japan experienced after the war, and I think particularly uh, from the 1960s on, and also the increasing importance and freedom of the individual within Japanese society. Um, and here you also draw on David Leheny's work, if I'm saying it correctly, uh, and outline 11 incidents or social, um, political, economic trends that have deeply affected modern Japanese society and culture and are, um, and are sort of uh, integral to the, um, to the social context out of which experimental Buddhism arises. So I was wondering if you could point to some of those aspects, to those aspects of this context that you feel are most relevant to your, most relevant to your study, and then briefly explain what you mean by the term experimental Buddhism. Okay. Well, that's a tall order. Sorry. That's a bit. (laughs) That's all right. Um, I mean, I was thinking of things like the, um, not necessarily the specifics um, of, uh, of, the things that are specific to Buddhist his- Japanese Buddhist history, such as funeral uh-huh. Buddhism, but things about like the increased importance of the individual and individual choice, religion a la carte and such. Right, right. Okay, well, I started going to Japan in 1976. And from 1976 to now, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. I feel extremely fortunate that I've been able to have close relationships with uh, Japanese people in a variety of places, Sapporo, Nagasaki, Hamamatsu, and then the Kyoto, Kyoto, greater Kansai area. Mm-hmm. Over time, society changes, culture changes. And in the case of Japan, I was there at the beginning of the economic uh, miracle or the er- economic bubble, saw that happen, saw the bubble deflate slowly and the consequences of that. And I think part of the consequences of that bubble, especially in the 1990s, this is often talked about uh, Japan's lost decade, where uh, there was a major 
recalibration, I think, on the part of many, many Japanese from all levels of society about the type of society they created after the war. Of course, there's a lot of external influences shaping the ways in which politics and economics and uh, society and education all interacted and, and fed into a certain grand goal of rebuilding after the war. But when the economic downturn took place and people started being laid off, that was very upsetting to many Japanese who were who, who maybe they still had jobs, but they realized that they had moved from a society where they could depend upon regular economic growth to a society where not only growth was being curtailed, but also expanding businesses were shrinking and exports were suffering and a number of social problems were arising that could be traced directly to the obsession, if you will, about economic gain, material success, uh, education, education, education as the way to make this happen for individuals. And so a great a disillusionment set in and that affected a number of things. Uh, we can see this in the arts. We can see it in theater and movies, uh, literature, certainly uh, religious practice, not so much because Buddhism was, as you know, uh, obsessed with or, or focused on providing funerals, memorial mm-hmm. services, not so much spiritual counseling at a time when people were very uh, open to spiritual counseling. And that's where new religions fulfilled a role and provided community and and a a blueprint for how to move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Buddhist institutions in Japan are still trying to deal with the consequences of the economic downturn and the lack of trust and even respect to a certain degree that many people have for these venerable, long-lived traditions in Japan. So the emphasis on individuals and Finding happiness outside economic context, material context. This is something that begins uh, full speed. Well, of course, in much, much earlier during the student revolution, these topics came up. But then they were co-opted during the uh, rapid economic growth. And when we get to the 1990s, uh, late, late 1990s and 2000s, we have a different dynamic in society where people are saying, well, I'm not going to be a, a cog in this corporate mill. I'm going to work jobs that maybe don't pay so much, but they're going to give me time that I can pursue my own interests. And, of course, people are also paying attention to what's happening in other countries around the world. And then with the rise of uh, advanced telecommunications and the Internet, people becoming more connected, more global, uh, I think this puts uh, a greater emphasis on the individual. And they realize that we have the power now in contemporary Japan to choose how we believe, how we live, and therefore we don't have to follow these old patterns of mm-hmm. being affiliated with a temple or with a shrine or even playing a role in our local community. We don't have to do that. It's not legally required. And for much of Japanese history... As you know, as many listeners know, this has been a rather coercive aspect about Japanese religion. 
um, religion has been used to control people, to monitor people, to uh, provide a rather Confucian sense of order in society and self-censorship, self-monitoring, of course, self-cultivation too. And yet um, that has not been really an an element of Buddhist practice in post-war Japanese society until very recently. And some people may be listening to this and say, well, what about Zen? And, well, yes, what about Zen? Uh, I start my book in the preface, I believe, with a quick story about a Rinzai priest who says he can't think of anybody in his tradition who exhibits what he would say is uh, enlightened behavior. Mm -hmm. And his parishioners, they really don't care about meditation. What they care about is memorial services for their departed loved ones, and then when they die, to have a proper memorial service. Mm I don't want to sound like I am bad-mouthing these traditions because they still do have strict training regimens for young priests. And yet that training lasts a short time. When the priest actually goes back to his home temple, it's a different game and it's a different story. He may have the spiritual discipline to deal with economic, social, political, uh, community issues, but he is not going to be promoting meditation in a major way simply because people aren't going to participate in it. They feel like in Japan and for many countries in Asia, uh, meditation is better uh, practiced by someone who knows what they're doing. It's hard work, and therefore regular people can access liberation and awakening through meritorious actions, supporting temples, supporting priests and monks, and the emphasis that we have in North America on meditation and Buddhism is probably a bit uh, overblown and misplaced. Mm-hmm. All right. So Could, then you, you asked me then to talk about experimental Buddhism. Yes. All right. Uh, and, and, want- and, and, and in a minute, we'll t- we'll, um, I was, gonna ask, I was go- going to ask um, you to speak about a few specific examples, but in general, right. what do you mean by it? Okay. Well, when you think about the word experimental, it's quite common in Western societies. We experiment with cuisine. We experiment with lifestyles, with a new type of haircut or personal appearance or maybe even a a career change. And implicit to this idea is that there is a situation which can be uh, structured in such a way that, first of all, we identify it as a situation that is open to some methodological uh, access. We hypothesize what a problem might be or what the issue at hand is. We come up with a way to act on that hypothesis. We have a method or methods, and then once we enact those methods, we see what the results are. And I feel like this is a very pragmatic uh, rational in some degrees, sometimes not so rational, but certainly it's, it's a pragmatic way to approach religious affiliation. And people are looking around, perhaps with a consumer-type mentality, perhaps not, but certainly they have options, more options than have ever been possible, I would say, in the history of, of humankind. Not only can we read books, we can see DVDs, we can access things online. There are teachers that are traveling regularly. They may appear in our 
city or our, our neighborhood nearby. Mm-hmm. There are even movies about these topics. Uh, friends travel, people travel to other countries and cultures and live there and come back. So there's this, this tremendous uh, wave of information. And um, I, would, I would even say direct experience that is available to many people in how they configure and understand their affiliation with a religious tradition. Most people then will privilege their own individuality, the subjectivity of their opinions, what's going to work for my life. And in the social sciences, we talk about agency. This is individual agency. Uh, where we have a certain uh, strategy based upon uh, resources that are available, based upon our own abilities, and it's complicated. There's educational levels, there's issues mm-hmm. of gender, and so on. I don't want to get into that. Yeah, But all of this then plays a part in the strategy we devise in approaching a particular religious practice. I emphasize how important it is for us to start off this uh, investigation or this, this strategic uh, investigation by a sense of positioning. Where do we think we are right now? I'm 35 years old. I have a university degree. I'm not happy with my job. I'm not happy with my family. It's understanding that position. Very subjective, of course, but it has an emotional resonance. And that is often the place people begin from when they then start to investigate and negotiate the religious tradition and see what resources are available and what might contribute to helping them in the circumstances of their lives. They're certainly looking for a tangible application of these religious resources. And once they apply these resources in whatever context it is, whether it's a religious, whatever it's a retreat, whether it's attending a service on a regular basis, uh, some type of spiritual practice that might include meditation or chanting or charitable works, what, whatever that is, how does that application of a religious resource then produce a result? And here we go back to the idea of an experimental process where the the result is tangible, Mm -hmm. the result can be assessed by the individual or can also be assessed by their their family or their teacher or religious spiritual leader that they may be involved with. Um, I make a point in the book, however, that a teacher may say, well, you're making good progress, but you just need to double your efforts. And in many cases, an individual these days might say, well, I did all I could under the circumstances of uh, uh, at present, and I'm just not getting the return on my investment. So therefore, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. I'll try something else. Right. And we see this so often, so many different people that have gone through a type of spiritual smorgasbord, trying this, trying that, trying that, and then cobbling together a hybrid form of religious practice that some people would say is new age, but I think we've moved into a new period of of post-new age or or neo-new age. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, some of those rather eclectic earlier practices have now become institutionalized 
and thanks to the internet, uh, globalized, so that they're not so marginal anymore. Yes. And I, you know, I'm thinking about shamanism, for example, how people uh, dabbled in shamanism because of traveling, because of certain uh, experiences that they've had. But wow, I mean, now you can take uh, a full weekend seminar uh, for credit on shamanic practices. Mm-hmm. Do it in pres- you can do it in person, you can do it online. Uh, it's it's quite impressive what uh, what kind of what's the word I want to say traction some of these uh, traditions have been able to gain in contemporary society. Right. So finally, the last point I want to make here is that even if you affiliate with a particular tradition, and let's think here just for example about somebody who becomes involved in the mindfulness meditation movement, and this is a very popular movement right now, the vipassana, but Vipassana and mindfulness are different. Vipassana is within a religious context. Mindfulness, not necessarily so. And let's say, for example, a person has affiliated with one of these traditions. Still, they are going to be revising and reinventing their approaches to that and their their interaction with that tradition. They're not just going to swallow hook, line, and sinker whatever a teacher says as being the last word, there's always going to be this this dimension of agent. I see an individual sometimes to their detriment uh, because they will not move past certain delusions or certain uh, aspects of their ego that are holding them back, and that is also part of this practice. And certainly, being in San Francisco and the West Coast, um, I see this in a number of individuals among my students, among people who are older than me, the, the boomers approaching uh, retirement or beyond retirement. Uh, it's really a fascinating scenario, and it's not only about Buddhism. I think the idea applies to a variety of religious practices. We can even talk about, in fact, I'm going to a conference in Germany, uh, the International Association for Religious History, hmm. in late August, where a panel has been configured around this idea of experimental Religion, not Buddhism, but religion. I see. We have experimental Muslims, we have experimental Christians, we have experimental Hindus, and that should be interesting. Yes, sounds so. Um, So, so moving on to the, um, uh, I want to talk about a few examples of uh, experimental Buddhism, but I just would wanted you to first address the um, public image of Buddhism in contemporary Japan. Now, there are a lot of aspects to this, and some of it has to do with scandals being um, uncovered, where um, you know, sort of parishioner donations are not being used exactly wisely, to put it lightly. But one of the biggest problems um, with the public image of Buddhism in contemporary <coughs> Japan is that it's seen as a basically, you know, funeral religion. So I was wondering if you could just um, briefly explain, because for listeners who are familiar with Japanese religion, Japanese Buddhism, this will obviously, you know, this is not news. But for those um, that don't know about um, the history of Japanese Buddhism, particularly in the 20th century, mm-hmm. um, I was wondering if you could just, just explain how it is that uh, Japanese Buddhism has come to be seen as a funeral religion. Right. Okay. And, well, and, well, and also why this is a problem for the public, the public okay. image. Yeah, I'll try to be brief on this. Um, let's go back to 
the real beginning of Japan's drive to modernize, which would be from the beginning of the Meiji period. And the Buddhists had it pretty good up until then because they were connected to the feudal regime. Buddhist temples were in every village. Villagers had to be registered with the temple. It was Buddhist priests had a lot of uh, flexibility to run those temples the way they wanted to. And many times they exploited local people. They had sexual affairs. They didn't act like very good Buddhists. Yeah. Uh, Duncan Williams has a wonderful book about this called The Other Side of Zen. And, and so we move, and, we move into, yeah, we so, move into the, go ahead. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just, I just want to mention this is between 1635 and 1868 that you have the situation where all people are required to be members of a uh, temple. Right. So I go on. Okay. So then once we have this new regime that comes in, which sees Buddhism as very problematic because it's associated with the previous uh, 250 years or so of feudalism, then Buddhism goes through a brief persecution. It is many temples are disbanded. Uh, a drive is on to find a religious orientation for the Japanese state and society that will help them modernize. And so, emperors, Shinto rituals um, all become important. And many temples at that time scramble to try to figure out and, and Buddhist leaders to figure out, well, how can we modernize? How can we be part of this project? We want to ride this wave too, rather than being drowned by it. Uh, many temples do lose some of their lands, but uh, larger temples are, by and large, able to protect their, their land holdings. Sometimes these temples are completely reworked into Shinto shrines, but that's another story. The real devastation to Buddhist economic stability happens, I think, uh, in the 20s and 30s, when and, and then after the war as well, when uh, land reform becomes more advanced, certainly after the war, land reform uh, robs Buddhist temples of a, much of their income. And then temples have to come up with a new way to cover expenses and pay for the priest's uh, livelihood. And also, as people are... Uh, coming into better economic circumstances, they have more money to spend on funerals and uh, graves. These become signs of social status, and that whole industry takes off after the war, particularly in the 1970s and 1980s. So that uh, perspective on Buddhist temples is fairly recent, although there is a long historical um, narrative about corrupt priests and uh, degenerate Buddhism. Uh, I, I don't want to overplay that culturally. Mm -hmm. but it is significant. It, is, it really is significant. At the same time, we have so many Buddhist leaders and priests who are doing a fantastic job mm -hmm. and really providing the type of moral leadership and spiritual religious leadership that one would expect of uh, more awakened Buddhist leaders. Whether that is through scholarship and writing, whether it's just through their denominational work or charitable work, or just in the local community where the priest is a combination of a learned individual, a, uh, a moral individual, 
and a person who has access through his training to religious powers. And, of course, it's through the rituals that this priest would, would enact that helps to ensure the spiritual salvation of departed ancestors. Okay, so okay. then – go ahead. No, no, please. Well, the other part of the question then is about contemporary society and how to turn this around, this negative perception of priests being uh, focused on money and funerals and memorials – and so really that's what the book what's my, what my book focuses on is the innovation and the activism which many priests who understand the situation and they realize it's a crisis they cannot just keep doing the same old thing even though the money is still coming in because they have enough parishioners but the parishioners are all older and once they're gone then who's going to pay the bills right Right. So many of these examples that I give in the book are in response to the crisis uh, facing, I would say, a majority of denominations in Japan. Mm-hmm. Right. So the over-reliance on funerals and memorial services, obviously a huge economic problem, mm-hmm. um, especially as people uh, terminate their affiliations with temples and thus stop paying them for uh, memorial services and funerals. Um, but I guess the, uh, it seems like the, the association with funerals has also led to a certain view of, um, uh, clerics as being sort of largely interested in in money. I suppose that's not the only thing, but Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's because the, uh, the, uh, funerals are quite expensive. Right. Um, Anyway, but so, uh, I wanted to just move on to an a specific example. Um, I was going to mention one. If there's an, if there's one that you sp- uh, specifically um, want to mention, please do so. But I was going to um, ask you to first um, speak about the vows bar because that's something that uh, people, I think, most people studying Japanese religion and Buddhism will have heard of the these vows bar or the, the vows bar or other ones like it. Mm-hmm. But um, to people studying Buddhism outside of Japan, this is a particularly, I don't know, ironic or um, right. odd example. Yeah. So, 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 so this is, um, I mean, there are a few of these uh, bars run by priests, but the one you focus on is the um, one, I think, run by Kiyoshi Fumihiko in, mm-hmm. um, in uh, Osaka. And he also, as you mentioned, uh, runs the Nankai Share House. Uh, right. A, mm-hmm. a place for at-risk adults and those with mild mental and physical handicaps. Right. Well, he's an interesting character because he came to Buddhism in the true Pure Land tradition because he fell in love with the daughter of a priest who then put the condition on him, well, if you want to marry my daughter, you're going to have to ordain as a priest. You don't have to practice, but you just have to ordain. He was a uh, he was working in the Marubeni Trading Corporation as a mid-level executive. And Love will find a way, so he did that. <laughs> and shortly afterwards, the, unfortunately, the, his wife's father passed away, and he had to assume the, uh, take, you know, the temple. Yeah. So his approach to Buddhism was also shaped by the earthquake in Kobe in 1995, uh, seeing volunteer activities. How can Buddhism 
help people in society. It's certainly not going to do it by just being in the temple and waiting for people to come to the temple. The temple has to be involved in outreach activities. And his, I, I think he is the person who started the idea of the, the bar, the priest's bar. Um, I saw the – I didn't see the original bar, but I saw it was still in the same building, really funky old building. Just feels like it would fall down in a strong wind. <laughs> and they have since uh, upgraded to a little bit better place. But um, the idea is that it's not original with him. If there is suffering taking place in a river that's passive, people are in the river, in this muddy river, they're confused, they're in turmoil. A priest cannot stand on the bank of the river and just watch them go by and preach the Dharma to them as they are, are washed out to sea. He has to get into that mud and the flow and deal with them directly. And that's been something that the true Pure Land tradition has valued for quite some time. That idea then is layered on top of a Buddhist, a general Buddhist concept of upaya, which is finding a skillful way to connect with people. And sometimes the the strategy or the skillful way to connect may not seem to be 100% Buddhist, but eventually a person is going to come around to the, the Buddha Dharma. And it's a strategy. It's It's connecting the dots reaching out to people where they are. His idea was to start a bar and the priests at the bar would not drink with the patrons, mm-hmm. but the the names of the drinks would have provocative Buddhist concepts or vocabulary. A, a patron would look at the, the name of the drink and say, well, what exactly is the heaven and hell drink? Mm-hmm. And that would give the, the priest behind the bar a chance to sermonize just a little bit about uh, Buddhist notions of heaven and hell and paths to salvation and and would you like that with rocks or not? Right. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's a brilliant concept and a lot of fun to go to these bars. I always have a couple photos in a whenever I give a talk to show the priest behind the bar and I think there's a photo in the book but then there's another one of everybody in the bar mm-hmm. posing for a photo with our hands together in gasho and I'm always able to get a laugh from the audience when I say, well, this is part of field work, too, and it's <laughs> but somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to going back to the yeah. bar in Tokyo this time in, in, in Nakano. It's yeah. a very nice bar. Yeah. So one of the ideas of this bar <clears throat> is a that the um, – is if, if, if I've understood correctly, is that on the one hand that the uh, priests uh, serving the, the – um, as bartenders can sort of teach people a little about a little bit about Buddhism, but there's also a there also um, there's a sort of counseling aspect to this. Yes, it that's seems. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, this counts. This sort of priest as counselor is a theme that seems to um, appear in a lot of these um, sort of experimental efforts or these experiments. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, one in which it ex- it's uh, much more explicit is. Um, an example you talk about in uh, Nara, and this is um, Hashimoto Junshin, a, um, I think he's a Shingon priest. Right. And he start. I mean, he has a traditional temple, but he also started this little um, sort of temple slash, I guess I'd call it counseling center, correct me if um, mm-hmm. that's 
in yeah, characterization. Was, was the original name for it. Oh, the right. Buddhist Counseling Center. So oh, down. that's right. So it's called Mina no Terra, and it's uh, in downtown on a busy shopping street in downtown Nara. So what is it, and what's the idea behind it? Right. His idea, again, is that temples have to reach out to people where they are. And when this particular uh, storefront became available, he decided he was going to rent it and furnish it and make it a place where people could come in, interact with uh, Buddhist traditions. And he has a beautiful statue there of a, oh, I'm not sure what Buddha. Buddha that is. It's in the Shingon. It might be a medicine Buddha. Hmm. Uh, but people generally don't have the opportunity to get so close to a statue and really just hang out in front of it. They can also go into a, a space where they can copy sutras, another space they can uh, sit in meditation. Uh, they can just sit there in a comfortable chair and have some tea and then in the back, there is a priest who is on duty, and whatever they want to talk about, they can go talk to this priest. Hmm. Uh, not about graves or memorials or ancestors, although many people do have those questions, especially regarding, well, how much do I need to give to the priest for performing the service? Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's never ex stated explicitly. That causes a great deal of anxiety to people. Uh, but then people also open up about some of their own problems in their lives, and sometimes it's a problem they're having with their local priest. I can't stand my local priest. What am I going to do about it? He's not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere, and I need his services. Um, so this is unusual for Japan, to people for, for just the general public to have a generic encounter with a generic Buddhist priest. It's in the Shingon tradition, of course, but they're not particularly pushing any doctrinal or uh, religious solution. They're just trying to relate to people as people, and they think that by doing so, they are encouraging uh, a relationship, they're, they're nurturing a relationship, and indeed, it has proved beneficial. Some people have joined the temple. Even though they're not local residents, some people have made monetary contributions, and it has been successful enough so that uh, Hashimoto-san is opening a branch in Tokyo. Mm. Mm -hmm. wow. so, so, so that's sort of priest as counselor. Now, another uh, trend in the experiments that you um, discuss in your book, uh, especially in Chapter 5, is using temples as venues for performances. Oh yes. Now um, you you give us um, many specific examples, um, and the uh, so I, I guess the questions here would be one: what motivates these? Um, the first question is: uh, what motivates these people mm -hmm. uh, people in charge of the temples, either the boards or the priests, to open up their temples as venues for performances, and sometimes of you know, uh, performances that have nothing to do with traditional Japanese culture or Buddhism. Um, and second of all, I wanted if I wondered if you could mention uh, the Reverend Tagai Kansho, who is a Nichiren priest in Tokyo, who after who did open up his temple for performances. Specifically, he set um, traditional Buddhist sutras to rap, or he he sort of turned them into raps, I suppose, mm -hmm. and set them to uh, various um, beats. And, but after about a decade, he sort of 
looking back, he had some doubts about the efficacy of this approach. And so I was wondering if you could um, discuss his reaction and thoughts. Okay. Multi-layered question. Let me go back, first of all, to the counseling dimension, because a priest who is serving as a counselor, who is doing outreach, is motivated by a certain social problem, whether that is the suicide issue, whether that is uh, isolation among elderly, Mm -hmm. whether it is young people behaving badly. The priest invests in this problem and then wants to educate his parishioners and community members about the problem. Well, okay, how can we do that in an effective way? Let's have some music at the temple. Everybody likes music or a fashion show or something else that is dynamic and interactive and uh, fun. And then do this with the theme of promoting awareness about suicide. Mm. Then it becomes a better package for the temple's board of directors to accept all these strangers are going to be coming into our temple and mucking around and we have to spend money to prepare for this and get the lights and it's a it's an expense and it's a risk in some ways too um i don't know what they do about liability insurance but i'm sure that's that's a concern anyway these uh performances at temples are I don't know if you've ever been to one, Luke, but uh, it's it's a wonderful setting to go into a place that is traditional during the day and then at night or in the afternoon. It has a very festive air and there's a performance inside the main hall that may or may not have anything to do with, with Buddhism. But Buddhism, generally speaking, is fairly flexible about accommodating a variety of approaches, and I guess this again would go back to the concept of upaya, you can come up with a strategy that may not on the surface appear to be overtly Buddhist in mm-hmm. quotation marks, but it may lead people to uh, a, a deeper engagement over time. So in the case of uh, Reverend Tagai, sometimes uh, we see examples where People have been doing these performances and concerts for quite some time. Then they say, well, enough is enough. We, we've done this work, and now let's see if the seeds grow. I think that's his approach. He also was a bit disillusioned by his own parishioners who would not come to these performances. Hmm. And I think he felt hurt by it in a way, that they were not interested in his creativity his performative ability, mm-hmm. his uh, outreach efforts, all they were interested in is the ritual dimension of funeral Buddhism. Yes. And so he has gone back to a more traditional approach. I think, however, he's still a fairly young man, that he will eventually come up with something else that will be cutting edge and very creative and uh help to promote awareness not only of his temple but of the Nichiren tradition and Buddhism in general. Yes. He, he got a lot of press. He was uh, on CNN, BBC, hmm. uh, MSNBC, of course, Japanese TV stations as well. Um, and that's just the, the, the television aspect of it. Right. Um, yeah, so I think many priests are, are figuring out that the temple can be a, a multifunctional 
location, just as a traditional Japanese home with its sliding doors. Yes. Well, they could be removed. You could have a big hall if you needed to. You could have an intimate room if you needed to. Um, people are starting to think outside the box, so to speak, about how their temple can function uh, to meet a variety of, of uh, constituencies and, and help to promote a variety of activities. Great. So as, as a, um, we're getting close to the end, but I did want to, uh, one of the, in, in your final chapter, The Future of Buddhism in Japan, you note that, um, um, and for listeners not um, familiar with Japanese Buddhism, uh, this might, you might not know this, but um, one of the problems in Japan is that the de- de- that each denomination is, the denominations are rather separate. And yes. so institutionally, their interest is in perpetuating themselves Right. And it's less in sort of the health of Buddhist of uh, Buddhism more broadly, mm-hmm. um, but you note, and so this is perhaps a problem that's uh, inherent in the system as it currently exists in the or the, in the institutional structure of Japanese Buddhism, where it's all these separate uh, kind of self interested interest institutions. Mm-hmm. But you argue that to survive, um, there has to be collaboration. There right. has to be sort of uh, not pan Buddhist, but sort of interdenominational, uh, ecumenical collaboration. Um, and you give free two. You give two examples of collaborative groups. One is uh, Bozu Be Ambitious, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Freestyle Monks. Mm-hmm. So, um, what are these groups? You know, what do they do, and uh, what do you think their potential is? Um, I say, what do you think their potential is, and not how, um, mm-hmm. rather than asking how uh, effective they've been because they're still relatively new. So it seems Mm -hmm. it's difficult to tell at this point. Right. Well, I think I'll focus on the Bowles Be Ambitious since time is uh, short here. This group started with about 16 to 18 members, mostly in Tokyo. And now it has expanded to over 300. And this is in about a uh, eight, eight to 10 year period. So that is encouraging because Priests from all different denominations come together for a one-day workshop on a particular topic. Um, I give some of those topics in my book, mm-hmm. and they're, they're surprising topics. Are, are you, am I really a Buddhist is one of the topics. That, that was what priests from Japan's uh, six major denominations were investigating. And so I think they are stimulated by this. They get new ideas. They take them back to their home uh, their home base, they, they experiment with some of these ideas, see how they work, see what kind of results come out. And then uh, the successful ones, build, success builds upon success. There's communication among the priests, networking among the priests, uh, even some local chapters of the, the, the bows, the priests be ambitious. And <clears throat> that's, that's very positive. Um, but for any type of long-term institutional change, it's going to take a decade or more. And it's also going to take a, <clears throat> a generational shift to see what works for people who are now in their 40s and maybe 50s who have a very different perspective on religious affiliation and practice and membership than their parents did. And then there's the, then there's the, the, the unknown factor of people even much younger than that who uh, show very, very little interest in, in religion. But at the same time, we can think about their grandparents. Maybe they weren't interested in religion at an early stage. And then as they go through the socialization 
practices of Japanese society, they realize, well, yes, I can be religious. I can be an educated person. I can pay my respects to my ancestors in a way that is uh, credible and feels good culturally. And it's not going to cost me an arm and a leg to do it. Mm -hmm. So I think there's uh, a, a, a nice blend of pragmatism and innovation and experimentation that can come together in the future, but it's certainly not guaranteed. We didn't really see an upsurge in membership in Buddhist temples following the triple disaster of March 2011, after the earthquake, the tsunami, and then the nuclear meltdown. There were a lot of priests that were active and doing great things to provide uh, relief and counseling to people in in um, that part of Japan. But in other parts of Japan, that activism really didn't translate into uh, local practices or how a temple is run. And I just want to put in a plug here. The book does have a critique about this concept of engaged Buddhism or, or uh, socially engaged Buddhism. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the, the term has uh, reached its shelf life and that – it would be much more accurate to use a term like Buddhist-inspired activism because of a number of reasons. Uh, it's experiment, uh, yeah, experimenting with religious resources is not always progressive or, or positive. We see uh, rather hurtful, racist, even religious nationalism appearing in places like Burma, Sri Lanka, southern Thailand, sure. where Buddhist monks are using Buddhism to protect their version of Buddhism, but they are doing it in a very hurtful and and racist way. To them, however, that would also be uh, engaged Buddhism. And so the term needs to be nuanced and updated. And so I'm promoting and proposing a replacement term of Buddhist-inspired activism. Sure. And for listeners who um, want to look into that more, I believe that's in Chapter 3 that you sort of talk about these terms in greater Mm -hmm. depth. Yes, I do. Thank uh, you. Um, so we've taken a lot of your time, but as a final question, I just wanted to ask if there's something that you're working on at the moment. Well, at the moment, I am finishing a chapter for the Oxford Handbook of Contemporary Buddhism. Michael Jerison, who's done a lot of work on Buddhism and violence in South Asia, Southeast Asia, he's the editor. Hmm. And it's going to have 26 chapters. My chapter is on diasporic Buddhisms plural, and how Buddhism travels to various non-Asian societies and how it becomes part of that society, some of the dynamics in that process. But then I was also asked to write about conversion. When somebody becomes a Buddhist who is not from a country where Buddhism is the de facto religion, what is involved in that process? And Experimentation, yes, that's part of it, but there's also been some wonderful scholarship that I've had the privilege to encounter in this research that has opened my eyes uh, to the psychological aspects of religious affiliation. So I really learned a lot from writing this chapter. And let's see, I also finished a chapter on, I finished an article on Japanese gardens for the Asian Art Museum of San Francisco. Hmm. That should be online. And then an article for the in-house publication for Risho Kosekai, uh, Dharma World, about ritual in Japan. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, um, 
Okay, well, I suppose that brings us to the end. So I just want to thank you again for speaking with me today. And I I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Uh, That's it for today's new books in Buddhist studies. See you next time. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.